In the beginning, there was darkness. Then, there was Paul Brown. Paul Brown transformed the game. Hello, Paul Brown here. Welcome to the first ever International Browns Podcast. Good morning, Cleveland. It is an absolute debate special. It's like the British election that's going to happen tomorrow. In one corner, we've got Jack Duffin from London weighing in about 180 pounds. Jack, in red, how are you feeling? I'm good. Uh, it's, it's home turf, this debate. Um, chatting about front offices is where I uh, make the mustard. So uh, I, I'm feeling confident. I, I think this is going to be a UK victory here. The debate today is, is Dorsey a good manager? And in the blue corner, from Chicago, <clears throat> from Cleveland, in Chicago, we have Ian Right, Right, Right. Ian, how are you feeling, sir? I'm feeling great. I'm fresh off finishing the near four-hour saga of the Irishman. So I knocked that Irishman out. Now it's time to knock the Englishman out. <laughs> it's a really, really good film. And uh, guys who's listening to this, I want you to let us know afterwards what camp you're in. Are you in Jack's camp or Ian's camp? And everyone listening at home, I want us to show that we can have an adult discussion, adult debate without punching knives or guns. So we've got six topics to discuss and each topic is going to be around three to five minutes. The first topic is drafting and guys i'll ask ian as our guest what hand is my watching at the moment my last name is right i'm going right right all the way left right it's in the right so the first topic tonight is dorsey drafting was it good or was it bad i'll leave it to you so when it comes to the draft, we're probably at that point talking about what Dorsey's strong point is. You know, the one thing that Dorsey has in his corner is he's been doing the scouting ranks since 91. You know, he started off with the Packers and moved with Seattle, made a few other jumps, kind of making his way up. So Dorsey has always been regarded as one of the top talent evaluators in the NFL. Dorsey's issues when it comes to his stops – is more of his style. He's more of a brash, kind of old-school generation type of guy. So when we look at John Dorsey, he fits the, the, the persona that a Cleveland fan is looking for because Cleveland fans are generally given that blue-collar title, so that falls right into what Dorsey kind of is. So it's, this needs to be the category where Dorsey makes his hay because I'm sure all the other categories are going to be people that are having uh, assistance with his decisions. But, you know, when we look at the two drafts, because that's the thing, we're only at two drafts. Jack and I have mutually agreed that it's tough to really judge a GM until three years after a draft. So I think the point here is Dorsey's coming into his third draft. And aside from the play on the field, which we'll get to later, we really need to focus on, did Dorsey in his first two years put the team in a position where coming into the third year, we can then weight his overall drafting ability. 
So Jack, what did you, what do you think? So just looking at every study that's ever been done on drafting, um, there is no evidence to say any particular drafter is better than the average um, because we see such a small range of outcomes. And Johnny Manziel is where I start the topic of conversation. There was lots of noise that he was very popular within the Kansas City Chiefs. And if the Browns don't trade up above um, the Chiefs and take Johnny, there's a good chance John Dorsey drafts Johnny Manziel as a player that everyone within the organization was saying how much they liked him. And then does that myth of John Dorsey, QB, whisperer, slash draft wizard, completely change on his head? And, and that's why the whole draft and this guy's great, this guy's not, is just a bit of a myth because we only see such a small amount of the um, actual outcome. And then that also depends on who their quarterback coach is. Is Patrick Mahomes Patrick Mahomes if Hugh Jackson's his coach? That has such a knock on. But so firstly, the myth of anyone's an amazing drafter is just a myth. Um, And also you've got to look at where he makes a lot of his better value picks. And and that's based on bad character. And we've already seen Antonio Callaway is the perfect example. He he was drawn up as he's going to be wide receiver three this year. It's going to be really good. He's going to get deep and he's already off the team. And, when you make hate, and Tyreek Hill's one that it has worked out for him on the field, there is that massive risk with these sort of picks, um, and it can backfire. We do, as we agreed at the start and before we started the podcast, it's the third year. After your third year, that's when you can really go, this is a great pick, that's a bad pick. Obviously, unless you've already dumped the player because they didn't work out, John Dorsey had an unprecedented level of picks in that draft and it was waste waste and waste once we got off past the first round two fantastic picks baker was the one the analytics community was behind made the right pick same way sashi made the right pick with miles garrett ward there was eight great picks and he made a right one and then after that it was an absolute train wreck um nothing great since then and that's the problem. There was great players. I'm sat there top of the second round going, give me Sutton, give me Gasecki, give me um, Harold Landry, give me um, Hurst. He obviously fell because of heart issues. But I can sit at home on a sofa and point to these players. He should have done better. And unfortunately, players like Corbett already gone. It's not looking good. So the whole John Dorsey is going to come in with all these assets and change the world and turn us into superstars at the minute, it's not looking good. Yeah. The, the, counter, the counter to that is John Dorsey hired in four games left in historically one of the worst seasons in the NFL. So you take over an 0-16 team, and while I love my Browns fans, we are a very restless fan base. And when you look at the roster that he took over, and he catches this heat all the time, and trust me, there, I see all the people out there, there's a lot of Dorsey naysayers on the, uh, the Twitter machine and radio callers that talk about Dorsey's comment of the real football players. So when you look at the 2017 Browns, only nine players from that team are still on the team. That being Rashard Higgins, which we don't know where he's going. Najoku, Batonio, Treader, Miles Garrett, obviously suspended. Ogunjobi, Kirko, Schilbert, and Charlie Hewitt. So we're not talking about a, you know, obviously a couple of those were from the 2017 draft. And on top of that, only 15 players from that team are even still in the NFL. So 24 out of 52 are even still in the NFL. So you're talking about 
one of the worst rosters. And I know that there's been uh, people that have come out there and saying that, that John Dorsey took over what at that point was one of the worst rosters in NFL history. And at that point there, you have to make decisions to let players go. You have to make players, um, you have to make decisions to bring players on. And while the 2018 draft obviously is still hit or miss, given the fact that, you know, you did take your hopeful franchise quarterback at the top overall pick. After that, the unpopular pick of Denzel Ward, which I think maybe registered home for a lot of fans, given the Ohio State connections. I know it's, it's different being over there. The number of Browns fans that are obsessed with Ohio State players is unprecedented. Now, to be fair, over the last five years, there's been hell of great players. There's been Marshawn Lattimore, Vaughn Bell, Michael Thomas. You could literally have taken the Bo Bishop strategy of best available Buckeye and done pretty damn well. But I think uh, Dorsey did a, a hat tip to Ohio and a lot of his comments by taking Denzel Ward. Outside of that, I get your point. I get that you have players on here that have not ascended to the top ranks. But I think one of Dorsey's smartest things he's did was bring in Elliot uh, Wolf and bring in Alonzo Highsmith. You know, because ultimately, as we know, John Dorsey is not scouting 1,500 players. He's taking the top 30 guys. He's looking at them, and then he probably handpicks. I mean, we all are very familiar with the fact that Elliot Wolf was in charge of um, looking at Taki Taki. But you did get Baker Mayfield. You did get Denzel Ward. You did get Nick Chubb. So off the top, you have three players that you hope are part of a core moving into your third, your fourth year. And Dorsey came out and said his drafting philosophy is quarterback, defensive end, offensive tackle, wide receiver, and um, what was the fifth one? Um, Cornerback, cornerback. Yeah, that's right. So you can see already he goes Baker and Ward and then doesn't have a first-round pick. So of that list from 18, the only one that's not in the league right now is Antonio Callaway. And ironically enough, I don't know if you saw this, uh, former Browns six-round pick, uh, Simeon Thomas, actually was just suspended, I think, like two days ago uh, for violating the league's substance abuse policy. So, you know, there's another little tip in the hat when it comes to the Callaway. But you did have contributions from Avery in the first year. You have had contributions from Ratley. Chad Thomas is actually becoming a player in his second year. And one of the issues that the Browns run into is when you look at a franchise like the Steelers, the Steelers dr don't draft guys to start them right away. They draft guys who two, three, four years become players. You know, you look at guys like Vince Williams. You look at guys like Tyler Matakevich. You look at these guys that are drafted based on what their skill sets are, and then years down the road, they fill in. The Browns haven't had a coaching staff long enough to – and now everybody's blowing up again. So one of the reasons you have to shed players is because you're constantly changing coordinators. You're constantly changing. Well, we go from Greg Williams' scheme to Steve Wilkes' scheme. Now we're going to the big nickel, so we don't need Avery. So until you get some continuity in the system that you're run, because if you look at the Steelers, the Steelers say, I'm going from Dick LeBeau to Keith Butler. They run the same system. So we can still draft the same players. Kevin Colbert is somebody that knows what I'm looking for in an outside linebacker. This is what I'm looking for in a defensive end. So that's why you're seeing more success from those guys. Dorsey at this still point is still building that foundation. So it's, it's one of those things you're coming into the 2019 draft, probably not an overall. I mean, if you get Mac Wilson out of it and Greedy Williams turns into a solid number two corner, I think this was more about acquiring, you know, it was more of the trade year, the Vernons, the Odells, you know, you obviously got Jarvis last year. It was more that route. So that's why I'm saying Dorsey hasn't been great. But he hasn't been bad because if he's able to pull a franchise quarterback, 
a lockdown corner, and a league's top rusher out of one draft. I think most people would say that's a win. So Jack lost 30 seconds of the round. There's a few things to touch on. One, talking about continuity and a plan. The guy's got no plan. He's drafting man-to-man corners and then hiring, as we'll get onto, a coach that plays zone. So he's obviously not even thinking what his coaching staff is compared to what he's picking. We look at players um, like Ward, like Chubb. They were picked with picks that he's not going to have moving forward. Those were bonus picks brought in by Sashi Brown. And the issue is, yes, he's used them in the first year. He's not rebuilding those picks and adding more. He's dumping them and trading up and trading for players and almost wasting them in what we've seen. So that's there. And there was real players. Sashi Brown built the best interior O-line in the NFL last year. And what did Dorsey do? Smashed it to pieces. And we're now struggling with the O-line. Baker's struggling. Baker's breaking out the pocket because he doesn't trust his right guard. And whereas in the past he'd walk up in the pocket, he's now running left, mainly to the right, as Antonio Brown kept pointing out on Twitter. So there was real players here. If John Dorsey's going to come out with a statement like that, and Sasha Brown was rebuilding the roster, there was just constant additions. And it was a careful, long-term strategy to build a winner. And yeah, they lost. Why did they lose? We'll get onto it because the analytics department was completely ignored when it came to the head coaching search. They wanted McDermott. And if we'd have McDermott, a bit like you're seeing some of these poorer teams around the NFL now, they're winning. We were losing. It wasn't the roster. It wasn't the GM. That was on Hugh Jackson. The only thing is we can't really say what he would have or wouldn't have done with extra picks. For example, if he didn't have both the 33rd and the 35th pick, Um, in the 2018 draft. Does he take Corbett? Does he value Corbett higher than Chubb? That we'll never know. And obviously, as we know, a lot of these other picks have been moved around and, you know, twisted and shaken here and there. But when you're talking about Sashi Brown building, you know, the interior line, you're talking about him spending oogles of money on two guards. And then we coming in and saying, all right, we're going to run more of an outside zone blocking scheme. Well, everybody knows that Kevin Zeitler is not an outside zone blocking guard. He is more of a straightforward type of guy. So you draft Nick Chubb thinking, all right, we're going to start utilizing his skills in the outside zone. And we have this really expensive guard that doesn't do well in space. One of the reasons they drafted Corbett was because he was projected to have the feet to move side to side, which, you know, I would kind of lean on Joe Thomas's words that O-line is becoming one of the hardest positions to evaluate given the minimalistic skill sets that they're developing in college. So Again, it all relates back to your continuity within the coaching staff because we went from Bob Wiley and a Carlos Hyde backfield to a James Campen and Nick Chubb backfield. I think one of the reasons that we saw more of Carlos Hyde as opposed to Nick Chubb at the beginning of the year is because they knew Nick Chubb's strength isn't just blasting it in behind the, the, the guard in the center. I think he, they said, all right, we need to get this guy moving side to side. The, the egoness of Dorsey, though, said, you know what? If I dump this guy, I put it over on a D end, I can bring in an Eric Cush or a Wyatt Teller or Justin Craig, somebody that's going to fill that spot. Yeah, it was Austin and now, Corbett. Yeah, it was supposed he, to be Corbett. He, he believed coming into this season, Austin Corbett will be the starting right guard. And that is why, if he can't see that behind the scenes, what is he doing? Because he knew what Austin Corbett was after year one, and he was reckless in the way he just dumped him. Um, and it wasn't a cap move. Any of the talk of it's a cap move is nonsense because we got the same contract back with um, 
Vernon. So lots of people out there say, oh, it was a salary cap move. It's relevant. It was more of adjusting the money from the offensive line to the defensive side. If I'm not mistaken, the long term, like the three-year window is a little different. I believe they save years on down, right? Where we've got cap rollover, it doesn't really make any difference because whether you pay the extra 10 million this year or you spread 3 million over each of the years, there is no effective difference in terms of management. If we are obviously spending over the cap in any of those three years, it would have been different, but we're not. We've got rollover. Thank you, Sashi. Yeah. All right, guys, let's move on to round two. Jack to start, free agency. It's just been waste after waste after waste. We look at the names. Um, they've rolled in. They've rolled out. Um, there's just been players signed. Fells, a good signing. Um, then moved on and brought in um, another tight end, Demetrius Harris. And we've not seen any improvement in that and it's just splashing cash for the sake of it don't get me wrong there's been good moves um more of the understated ones your terence mitchell great signing done really well tj carry was just reckless he's he's not a nine million pound cornerback that's up there with some of the, the bigger contracts in the league um and sheldon richardson's coming on well he's doing solid but then there's also been misses or players we haven't gone chasing um players out there that could have really stepped up and given the Browns something just say Trey Boston go on I'll say Trey Boston in the safety room solid addition wasn't made if we look at Teddy Bridgewater why was there not a big push to go get Teddy Bridgewater instead we gave up a third round pick for a quarterback that was worse than Baker Mayfield by the end of the first preseason game that's just waste He's got all these resources from Sashi Brown, but he's almost just gone like a quid kid in a sweet shop and gone, let's just blow them all. It doesn't matter what happens. I've got all these assets. Let's spend. And it was just spending for spending's sake. A Darius Taylor. Why do we need a Darius Taylor? It was just waste again. Two million this year, three million next year, but obviously going to be cut. Is he um, a special teams specialist? Special yeah. teams linebacker. But he, he's, he's played several snaps still for the team and he's, he's not been good. Um, obviously the one that has stepped up on special teams, Tavia Thomas, been banging the drum for him forever, but it, it's just been spending in the wrong places, spending excessively. Um, and in many cases, not in the really, the positions that we needed more, uh, players like Chris Smith signed, dumped, um, wasn't delivering on what was promised. Carlos Hyde was signed, dumped, um, because he was getting in the way of a player he then went and drafted. And I didn't mind drafting Carlos Hyde because it meant you didn't need to go out and sign a running back in the draft. And drafting a running back that high is silly because as the NFL is moving, and we've seen it with the contract from Gurley, we've seen it with the contract from um, Bell, um, Johnson, Elliott, all of these elite running back contracts blow up in their faces because to give that player a contract, you're looking at... We're paying him till year eight of his career. And players are just declining quicker than that in the running back position. Some great articles out there in running back mortality. So if you're giving up the 35th pick in the draft, I would be looking for an eight-year commitment because you're hoping that player's good. And with the running back position, you're putting yourself in a position where you go, if he's good, we can't afford to pay him, so we're going to get rid of him. If he's bad, we're getting rid of him anyway. And whereas we could have had an elite defensive end 
an elite tight end, an elite wide receiver in Cortland Sutton. There was elite players who you can keep here for eight years to 12 years. And instead, the most promising thing out of the second and third round in that draft was a running back or QB, a QB we got rid of after a few games and benched, Austin Corbett and Chad Thomas. So the story of free agency with Dorsey has been spend it on rubbish, get not much back. And more or less, you're looking at who? Mitchell and Sheldon Richardson, which was still a pricey deal. as basically your only redeeming features. Chris Hubbard, Greg Robinson. What have those players done? We went into the last season. Our two biggest needs were offensive tackle and offensive tackle. And we got rid of our starting guard, the best pass rushing guard in the NFL. Who didn't fit the scheme. And see, that's where... But, but, but that, hold on. Your point on continuity, scheme, if you've got the best interior line in the NFL, you work a coaching staff around the players you have. You don't go, we're going to get rid of the best um, offensive guard because he didn't fit the scheme. You wouldn't be going, we got the wrong coaching staff, let's dump Joe Thomas. You just don't go putting players in. And it's the same way you've got two elite, potentially elite obviously wards proved it greedy williams is on his way you don't go drafting top your a, a cornerback talent that fits man coverage and you go let's play zone instead it's just the plans don't match up dorsey just goes there that's talent that's talent that's talent no idea what the bigger picture actually looks like the ironic part about that is is Wilkes ran man in Carolina when he had Josh Norman and then ran man. He ran a man zone scheme. Actually, he ran man on the outsides and then zone in the middle, which is what he tried to bring here with Patrick Peterson. So the idea, I don't think that there's a disconnect between the, when they sit down, you know, Dorsey's a football guy. So when he sits down with, you know, say a Hugh Jackson or sits down with a Todd Haley, which, you know, again, we're talking about constant change and what we need and what we're going to run. Dorsey has to look at a roster and project out years. You have to basically look like you do on this cap wise as a three-year window. He's not going to see Zeitler as somebody that's a long-term option. So you're sitting there going, how can I maximize this value immediately and get something from it? So for example, we talk about a lot of the guys that came in in 2018, 37 players were gone, were jettisoned from the 2017 roster going into 2018. That is a ton of holes to fill. So while we can talk about projections and, well, this player was there, we now know that they're good there. Unfortunately, that's tough to say because, again, we don't know what he would have done with certain picks. We can just look at it and say, they obviously believe in Nick Chubb. And I will actually agree. If it was me, I go to Nick Chubb this offseason with two years left on his deal. I give him a four-year contract extension, which brings that to a – we can make it a, the, the a three-year deal fourth state, option. Until their third season's finished, you can't offer a contract. I thought on second round picks you can extend after the second year. No. You got to do three years. Oh, well, that may be a statistical that thing. That was the last CBA, the, the newer, the most recent ones, three years. Okay. I thought that only applied to first round players because, okay. So they need to figure something out with Nick Chubb because you're right. Six years is probably your max window for running back. Now, if you can take a little time off him, you may be able to get a LaShawn McCoy. But you're talking about T.J. Carey. He's, I think, the 25th highest paid corner in the league. It may be one of those things where, so okay. That, that, that's cornerback one money. If he's the top 32, then that's cornerback one money. And he is not cornerback one money. 
I would agree. The only thing is you're talking about coming off of a team where there's not one player from the secondary from 2017 that's still on the team. So you needed to get guys in here that you knew you could rely on. If you were to switch the contracts of Money Mitchell and Carey or average amount, you're going to find that the reason the Browns had such good at quarterback depth was because of those deals. Now, it was something that he knew he had to spend the money because we had so many players that were not going to be in the league. You know, when you start having a core from 2013, 14, 15, that's not even on the team. And the only two players you have from 2014 are a guard, who which I would say is probably more elite than Zeitler was, just in based on what he can do. And Christian Kirksey, who can't, hasn't finished a full season in how many years. You're talking about giving guys money to fill holes. We bring in 16 players coming into the 2018 season. You know, you're looking at Demarius Randall via trade. Greg Robinson, I believe, was a one-year deal last year, and then they re-upped him for another one-year deal. Kind of a prove-it deal. Stanton, Tyrod. I mean, you're bringing in guys that are trying to win games now because you would legitimately 0-16. The fans, and I love my Cleveland Browns fans, but they're just impatient people. So I don't disagree that there was probably some reckless spending, which some GMs do because you had a majorly bad ship that you needed to write. And I think bringing in those guys, you know, the Money Mitchells, the Carlos Hydes, you know, trading for a guy like Jarvis, you're just trying to infuse some, some players and onto the team that actually know what they're doing. Because I sat through that 2017 season and watched players that had no business whatsoever on a, on a field. And partly some of them were drafted by Sashi, which we all knew Sashi wasn't the football guy. That's why he had Grigson and Andrew Barry and those other guys. He was more of a numbers guy. So you're talking about a GM who's had to basically patch one of the largest holes in NFL history to get a team to 7-8-1 and one this year and hopefully into a winning record this year. So, yeah, there's going to be some reckless spending. But at the end of the day, we can't project and say, well, he should have got this guy because now we know a couple years later that guy played better for another team. That's, that's almost impossible. That's, you know, the chicken and the egg argument. But if, if we look, if we go in all the way back to Sashi, Sashi was building out of a roster that wasn't good enough anyway. And, and if we look at why we owe in 16, it wasn't the roster. Miami have a worse roster than we do now. And why are they winning? Because their head coach is actually competent. The trouble is, John Dorsey got rid of the best cornerback in the room, Jason McCordy, who went on to continue delivering at a high level. And why did that happen? Because he sided with Hugh Jackson over Jason McCordy. Because Jason McCordy came out and said, well, I'm sick of the head coach throwing all of us players under the bus. And John Dorsey went, I'm siding with Hugh on this. You're gone. And announced that he was getting cut. We traded him for a peanut pick swap. Six-round six pick, I believe. Well, you have, to, you have to support your coach over a 30-year-old cornerback who, yeah, he was good. But to say he was the best cornerback on a team, he's, what, the number three on New England? So starting cornerback, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I think he's the nickel, isn't he? Yeah, but he's as in he's because obviously Stefan Gilmore is their number so, one. So yeah, but the the point is, if you're as John Dorsey, and we'll get on to coaching here, I'm happy to do it as the next topic. He's got a poor record now. He he backed you in that first year rather than putting the line down to Jimmy Haslam and saying this guy's got to go. He's incompetent. He doesn't know what he's doing. We have to move on because if he's willing to dump decent players, then he should have been happy to make the point to Haslam. And then he ignored the analytics department again. And what did we get? Rather than Sean McDermott and then the offensive coordinator for the Vikings, we got Freddie who, as we've seen, hasn't delivered. And I still stand by, I want to keep Freddie next year, but 
Freddie shouldn't have been the higher. And we discussed it when we discussed last year. It's really difficult for any fan on the outside to see because so much of what comes in in coaching, we get no idea. We see what happens on game day. Lots of the other stuff's behind the scenes. And it's not been good. It's his first coaching hire and it's been woeful. The one thing I will say is it's tough to say I know a lot of the, the things that you said are from reports and, you know, I don't know. I don't think Paul uh, DePodest has come out and said, you know, Teddy Bridgewater was the analytics quarterback we wanted in 2015. Um, Sean McDermott. Those are reports that were, Mar- you know, that Mary Kay Cabot and stuff put out there. And I get it. You know, we're o- we can only believe what we read and we have to assume that they're true. But at the end of the day, we don't know if that was in fact the conversation because I think I saw a month ago, Hugh Jackson did an interview where when Dorsey came into his office, he said, get the fuck out of my office. So there's clearly a disrespect that was on that side. Uh, so that was when he got fired though. <laughs> correct. So, but he got fired in the middle of his, you know, middle of the season last year. Yeah. So if John Dorsey was making roster moves for him at the beginning of the season, because he thought Hugh Jackson was, you know, a coach that he wanted or for whatever reason, it's tough to then come back and say, well, why well, then did Hugh feel so disrespected eight weeks later to tell him to go bleep himself in his office? Well, so if someone comes in my guess you, is operating, you're not going to be like, cheers, mate. <laughs> you give me the money, I would leave amicably. I'll tell you that much. But the thing I say is you don't, we don't know the conversations that were had. We can only judge in hindsight what the results were. And the fact, if you look at it, is he took his 0-16 team which, you know, I know that a lot of people, I actually liked Hugh Jackson. I still like Hugh Jackson. Um, that's for my own reasons. But at the end of the day, the, he took over a team with the worst roster and people have deemed the worst coach. And he has now turned it into a team that was almost 500 yes last year, 7, 8, and 1, with a winning record in the AFC North for the first time since Nam. And now in 2019, as what people are saying is the most talented roster ever, which I'll disagree with, um, and we've all, we're going to exceed 500 for the first time. So the Browns have never had the mediocrity stage. So it's tough to kind of micromanage and say, what is a bad deal? I don't think we're – if we get to a point where the contracts that we sign inhibit us from signing a guy like a Miles Garrett or keeping a Nick Chubb or something like that, I could agree. But at this point, we're taking speculation from media articles and saying, well, Dorsey should have done this and he's drafting for this. you got to do what the coach says because ultimately they're controlling the product in the field. You know, I saw a stat. Didn't Austin Corbett grade out from PFF like really well last game? So was it a coaching? Pass blocking was good. Run blocking was still woeful. So he's still uh, terrible and getting thrown out of the way like Cam Irving was? Some of it's okay. Some of it's bad. Um, but just looking at sort of the decisions he's made, and it, I think it's pretty clear Sean McDermott was the guy they wanted and this O-line coach and this uh, OC from the Vikings because the only reason he got invited back for a second interview was because Dee Podesta was pushing it. Um, you've gone and backed him as a head coach and you've got to do more. So um, for me, I don't trust Dorsey when it comes to coaching because it's not just the coach he's hired. It's pretty much everywhere that he's had his fingers in who the coordinators have been. Haley was his hire according to more or less everyone. Um, and that didn't turn out well in the end because he got sacked. So can you trust him on when it's come to coaching? And this has been the first time the GM's been trusted with the coach because it wasn't the case for the last hire. Um, when Sashi was there, it, it was very much a Haslam thing. So it, it, it's tough to sort of 
see where he goes and do we trust him again to make another coaching hire because it's looking like it with McCarthy. If he How, let's 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 carry on with the coaching uh, discussion now. Yeah, we can we can transition this because the one thing I will say is is I'm not sure when it comes to the coaches. I have blame that I'll put on a lot of people because if you look even at the end of the learner regime and into the Haslam regime, we've always seemed to have been absolutely terrible at hiring coaches. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember Mike Petton was like the fifth choice or something like that. So Jimmy Haslam has been, we'll use your word, woeful in trying to select a competent NFL head coach. And listen, you know, he's tried. I mean, we had Kyle Shanahan here and that blew up in their face. You know, we've had Anthony Lynn used to be here way back in the day. I mean, if you go back and look at all of these NFL coaches, all of the paths seem to cross through Cleveland, but none of them ever stay. That to me is an indication on ownership. Now, I'm sure John Dorsey utilized his skill within the NFL to say, hey, who are the guys here and there? But ultimately, you have to somehow find a personality mesh. And that's where I think he brought in Haley. And then Haley kind of maybe, I think we talked about earlier, he was a direct pipeline to a couple of the media reporters. And I don't think that made him very happy. So he, he got the wax for that. Yeah. So at the end of the day, I think we both agree. The coaching staff will likely be back next year. Um, the one thing I think, though, the organization needs to seriously look at is the players, the media, the ownership, and how the communications are being handled. And I know that the Browns have a very good VP of communications and Peter John Baptiste. But at this point, how this staff deals with these players, the guys like Odell, the guys like Landry leaving Baker, who seems to put his foot in his mouth every week. I do think that Freddie Kitchens needs to take a serious look at how he's connecting with these players because the way these guys have been treated and the, just the constantly chasing of tails, it almost seems like, well, he said, she said, go ask him, go ask her. This, this is just getting annoying. Yeah. And no, I agree with the, uh, the way just the players, coaching staff, front office, uh, react when contact with the media it's, it's, it's grim it's almost embarrassing each time they do a press conference you're like who's going to stick their foot in it now what issue that shouldn't even be there is going to come up and, that, and that's not the uh, vice president of communications fault I've come from a background of PR and politics and if you're in that sort of environment you can control what sort of someone's likely to say whereas if you've got a uh, player that's signed up to 20-30 million pound a year they, they'll go out there and say whatever they feel like um, they, they feel like they can say anything and they'll get away with it. So that's one of those. Um, things. Well, that falls on Dorsey. I mean, Dorsey, you have to be the general, you know, John Michael Dorsey. Grab the team, sit down at the end of the season and say, hey, guys, I would have a, I would have a slideshow. Kyle Shanahan likes slideshow of all the negative publicity, all of the stupid remarks, I would literally let it play on a slideshow for minutes upon minutes to show them how many distractions that they've created, that we've created as a coaching staff, that we've created as a management. You know, I, we go weeks without hearing the name Elliot Wolf. We go weeks without hearing the name Alonzo Highsmith. Okay, we need to sign up and take a page out of those guys' book because you're right. Every press conference, it's what media person is going to ask a stupid question what player is going to fall bait to answering a stupid question? And who are we going to throw under the bus and back back over? Yeah, uh, I think that'd be a great idea. 
mail that one in to the team. I, I think, yeah, you could probably get 30 minutes of footage out of the season that we've had. Easily. And, and you, you can have a nice PowerPoint, show it all, and be like, guys, sort it out. Um, well, I think what we do is, you know, Paul obviously has a direct connection with Dorsey, and Paul's off cooking lamb on some Instagram channel. We just booted him. He was like, you know what, guys? You're too much for me. I'm getting out of here. He took his new haircut. He took his fancy cooking things and his knives and his, he's gone. So, but I'm going to tell him the day before the Cincinnati game that we're going to, we're going to set up a time with Dorsey and I'm going to have my little checklist here for him because right now to me, he has the, he's sitting on that good GM level after a conversation with me, he's going to go up and actually I'll give you a random side story. Funny. So in the 2014 senior bowl, I actually had a 45 minute conversation with Ray Farmer. And we sat down and talked football for 45 minutes. So since then, I love Ray Farmer. I know as a GM, questionable decisions, but Ray Farmer was one of my favorite people. He gave some schmuck like me with credentials at a senior bowl, 45 minutes to talk football. So John, we won't talk about the same stuff I talked with with Ray because obviously that didn't go well, but I'd love 45 minutes of your time. So, but you know, what were the, the things this year, if you're kind of isolating incidents with players specifically, that, you, that kind of stand out to you? So the biggest one for me, and I think it really does us a disservice when we're looking at free agents. And after this happened, we then chased two or three big defensive tackle free agents and they weren't interested in coming. There might have been other reasons, but when you get a reputation for doing stuff like this, why do you want to sign for that GM? And, and that's what happened with Kevin Zeitler. Kevin Zeitler went to the cinema and pulled up Twitter. And what did he find out? Oh, he found out he'd been traded. And that's just disrespectful. It's pathetic and it's childish. Operate like a business. Operate like gentlemen. Operate like human beings. He should have been contacted by the team. He, he should not have been finding that out in any other form than a phone call. Um, obviously, they're not going to call him in because if you get called in and then you're on the way in, something's going to get leaked in that time. But just phone him up. Have a five-minute, ten-minute conversation. Say thank you. Look, we're really happy with what you've done. We've decided to go in a different direction. We've put you here. Um, all the best. Mm-hmm. It's my good friend, Dave Gettleman. We get on. We've had a good relationship. He's a great guy. And you move on. We, we saw the scene in Moneyball where uh, he teaches uh, Paul D. Podesta's character, uh, Jonah Hill, how, how to sort of move a player on. You, how to break the news. Yeah, you just do it like adults. And I think that, that just sort of showed the lack of sort of respect John Dorsey in the front office had for the players. That, and it's not just a fringe player. That is... Yeah, one he of was the- one of your top players, your top paid. And I don't disagree. The thing about it that I think the NFL has evolved into, because if you remember right, when Odell came here, he said the same shit about Gettleman and saying, well, you know, he reached out to my people. So my guess is Dorsey had told Zeitler at some point, hey, listen, we're in talks. You're one of the names. I, I can't see a GM not letting a guy know that he's in discussions. Joe Thomas tells you all the time uh, when there was all these talks about Denver, how they would just say, listen, the conversation's obviously coming up. Your name's always involved. We'll let you know. My guess is, he was, like you said, he was at the movies. I think he even did an interview that he had all these texts and calls from uh, friends and his agent. But the first thing he saw, you're right, was – Kevin Zeitler has been part of added to the OBJ deal. So that may be a timing thing, but yeah, you're hundred percent right. The, the, the players around the league, listen, I'm not one to say that they're all being disrespected is what's the most common word that's being thrown around, but as a professional organization, 
if there's those discussions coming on, and we don't know, maybe Gettleman called and said, hey, I need to know right now, who knows? You're right. There definitely needs to be a text message or something from John Dorsey saying, hey, tried to call you, want to let you know before this gets out there. That may have happened. But yeah, the public perception of that was not very good. And like I said, Odell had the same feeling on his way. So overall, I think GMs struggle sometimes with how to deal with players because of the money they're making and the high profileness of their pub. I mean, Twitter didn't exist when John Dorsey was coming up through the ranks. I mean, he he's not on Twitter as far as I as far as I know, at least not a real account. So, you know, they there definitely needs to be do they need to do a better job with that because overall, just how they deal with the media sometimes calls into question. Yeah. And there's another one that I come to is the Duke Johnson fiasco. And so we start from the start and it was a a move that I wouldn't make, but signing Kareem Hunt obviously came with this baggage and this question. So he did the right thing. He said, look, I'm going to face up to the decision I've made to bring in Kareem Hunt. I'm going to do a press conference and I'm going to answer it. And there was a lot of tough questions thrown his way. And to be fair, he did a good job. And then the final question was, what does this mean for Duke Johnson? And rather than saying something like, he's a talented player, we're happy to have as many talented players, um, great football players, you can't have enough of them, something like that, nondescript, doesn't go anywhere. He turns around and says, he's not expendable just yet. So basically he said, he is going to be expendable just at some point later in this season. And there was no need for that choice of words because it basically just said, look, you're on the trading block, getting rid of you, don't care about you, you're not important. And this is a player that only a year before he'd given an extension to. So he, it wasn't sort of a carryover player from the previous regime. He's extended him personally and it just looked stupid and childish. It's turned out to be a really good trade. If you tell me we're getting a third for a running back, I am laughing. So yeah, that definitely oh, turned out. And you're right. The way that press conference went, they kind of said, does this, I think they even asked it, does this make Duke Johnson uh, expendable? And he goes, no, not just yet. You know, we have, he's a really good football. The problem I think was not what he said. I think it was the order in which he said it. I'd have to go back and look at the transcript. But you're right. He basically kind of made it seem like, well, no, I wouldn't get rid of him right now. I got a guy in suspension for half the year. Like I'll worry about that then, you know, but it's one of those things where, the old school GMs, the non, you know, John Lynch was obviously in the media. Mike Mayock was in the media. I think they have a little bit more polish when it comes to words because Dorsey comes out and says some things at times like, you know, we're going to wake the sleeping giant. Everybody's motivated, but then it comes back and can kick him in the ass later. Hence the, you know, we got to get some real football players into here. I don't think what he meant by that is like, I got a bunch of slappies, you know, that are, not football player. I think what he was saying is, you know, we need to get some real, you know, real good guys, some real guys that are going to come in here to help us win. His version of motivational speech sometimes can be interpreted in this day and age as being counterproductive, especially when dealing with, you know, rather delicate athletes. And, you know, I think some players really like how direct he is. I mean, a lot of times when you were talking with some of the free agents, they point blank said, Dorsey just tells you flat out where you are, where you stand. I think for some players, that's really good. For some players, they're going to tell you to go hit the bricks. And I think Duke Johnson, I think when he probably went into Dorsey's office and he goes, look, dude, you're a scat back. You're a third down back. You understand blitz protections. I'm not going to run you 15 times a game. So take your money or shut up. And Duke's like, I'm out of here. 
you know, get, get rid of me. And to be fair, he's gone to Houston and basically done exactly what he did his two years with the Browns. I mean, everybody was worried. Duke Johnson is a good football player, but he's just that. He's a good football player. He's not Alvin Kamara. He's not an elite guy. He serves a role. He catches passes. Kareem Hunt is a better version of Duke Johnson. I think we all know that. But, again, Dorsey does need to be a little bit more polished. To, to me personally, that doesn't bother me. Like, I'm more of a – I was, you know, raised by, you know, more disciplinarian family. I'm not really big into the feelings and the sensitivities, you know, unless we're in a Steelers game and somebody's screaming things in my ear like I told Paul. But um, I definitely think that Duke Johnson was one of those guys that was – taken back by Dorsey's candor. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, your job partly as a GM is a salesman. You're selling the dream of free agency and why they should come and play for you as a GM and then obviously for the head coach and and why we take care of players better than everyone else. So while the feeling side doesn't bother me as a person, as someone in sales, you're selling the dream. And if, if you've got reputation for treating players like trash and trashing them publicly, then... Do you really want to go and play for that guy? Probably not. Well, the odd part is, is, and I think it's actually an inverse on the team because the team, as I said earlier, is very talented in the skill positions. However, in the positions of toughness, the offensive line, the defensive line, we are soft. I mean, you know, Devereaux Lawrence was allegedly one of the toughest defensive tackles, but let's be honest, he was a fourth or a fifth rotational guy. So Miles Garrett, while he can, we know he can swing a helmet, He's not, you know, he's not chewing on, you know, metal, as they say. You know, we don't have those road grading, moving, you know, the Quentin Nelson, so to say, type of offensive line. We have very finesse, polished guys, and that's the opposite of the Dorsey approach. So I'll be curious to see how he tackles this offseason because, you know, he has obviously a history with contracts that can be sometimes questionable. But one of the biggest things that he had an issue with in Kansas City was how he allocated money how he didn't bring back guys like Jamal Charles or, you know, Derek Johnson or, you know, these guys that fans really liked. So he's not afraid to make an unpopular decision, but he's got to figure out a way with, you know, the current players he has on the roster and guys that get in here because we are not a tough team. We do not have the toughness of the Steelers in the trenches. And that showed a couple of weeks ago on the field. And, you know, that's, that's the dichotomy of John Dorsey. The tough old football guy isn't finding the road grading players in the trenches yeah and you brought up contracts and that's where i want to go next it's the fear straight away as soon as he signed was we looked at his track record and why he was let go in kansas city it was the failure to control contracts um yeah allegedly yeah 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 it was a disaster if if patrick mahomes wouldn't have hit as a rookie qb alex smith was already out the door because he had blown the cap um and you never want to be in a position where drafting a rookie quarterback and requiring them to be the starter in a year's time, even if they're as bad as sort of a uh, Hackenberg or whatever his name was. Um, you never want to be in that role. And the course, issue yeah. is he was wait until late with these players and then pay them whatever they ask for. And we've seen the evidence. There's great books from like Zach Moore of yeah, pay the these Eric, players. The Eric early. Berry contract was one that he waited that extra year and then had to pay you know, 20% more than what it was because the safety market reset. And it's the structure of the contracts and players want them um, added lots of guarantees late because then you're going to get the first year of your contract. Usually whatever contract you get, if you get a multi-year contract, you're guaranteed the first year um, just the way it's structured. So 
load more guarantees in later. That's where you can then guarantee lots of paydays. And that was the fear. And when it came in, it was like, no, he's, he's, he's going to learn. And the first contract that he's really got coming up um, should have been dealt with last offseason. I was calling out for it before the linebacker market went through the roof is Joe Schobert. And Joe Schobert did an interview this week and said, no, we're still having our talks. And that, that's not good because this is a deal that would have been a lot cheaper if we look at going into that offseason a year ago. And if you tie that up then, we're talking about how Joe Schobert's had a breakout season um, he's on a really cheap deal. Everything's fantastic. And there's sort of two tiers to this. Kirksey, even at the start of last season, this year was going to be his last year on this deal. Um, injuries had been an issue. Um, so that was moving on. You've drafted two rookies. You're never going to go, look, we're going to clear out the rest of the room. And whoever these two rookies are, they're going to be our uh, guys. So Joe Schobert was getting paid whatever happened. And you're in a position where he's able to demand more. The position room's gone through the roof. It's just been an unmitigated disaster. And we're going to see that Joe Schobert deal is going to be expensive. <sighs> How much of the Joe Schobert not getting done last year do you think was part of them having to kind of bite the bullet on the Jamie Collins deal? Because, you know, obviously they brought Jamie Collins from New England on that big deal from the past regime, and he was taking big money. Then you signed Kirko to that big deal. And he was obviously getting the front side of his big money. I agree. And the ironic part is John Dorsey has an economics degree. So he understands economics. So we all know that every year, especially now that the cap's going up damn near 20%, that these contracts are going to go relative with the market. So is Joe Schobert CJ Mosley? No. Is he Luke Keekley? No. Can you pay them like that? you would have looked really good. I'm thinking if you'd have signed it last year, but the question then becomes did Tobert's representatives knowing the CBA is going to come up this year, basically say, we're not touching this. You know, if you remember right, Schobert made the pro bowl in 17, then didn't make it in 18. And now is a potential candidate to make it here in 19. They probably wanted to say, you know what, we'll wait it out so we can come off a pro bowl year, which he's had a great year. So if Schobert was the one at the end of last year that said, you know what, I'm just going to bet on myself. He won that bet, and now the Browns are going to have to reach in because I think well, there's going to be 10 linebackers that make over $10 million next year, and Schilbert's not in the top five of those. So, Yeah, no, it's, it's one that, based on sort of the noises, and I don't think Schilbert comes out and says there's been no talks if the Browns tried to have talks and he turned them down. I don't think he's the sort of guy that's going to go making that sort of stuff up. It, it might be the case. Who knows what happens behind the scenes? But... um. If you get that deal done early, you then make a saving. And he, he'll probably end up, in theory, getting paid more than Keekley just because Keekley's contract's old. Old, um, yeah. So, but yeah, he's not in that sort of CJ Mosley category. But he can sit there and go, why not? I want that money. Um, or I want a really high amount. And then the Browns have got to probably go up and match it because you can't go into next season with Mac Wilson and uh, Taki Taki. And, and he knows that. I mean, we're not negotiating the contract for Schilbert. And this is where Dorsey's going to have to prove himself as a general manager because, you know, I know even yourself when the J.C. Treader deal came out, you had said, holy shit, what a great deal for Dorsey. And clearly Treader felt, hey, I'm getting paid. I'm making enough money. So if he's able to do something where he's able to negotiate this deal, 
you know, he's obviously got all of these players over the next few years that he's going to have to extend. So I don't know if he can front load a deal, make an out after two, what that deal is going to look like. But ultimately, you know, Schobert has proved his worth, you know, as I think he was a fourth round pick, you know, they've moved him weight and positions and, you know, he was definitely a day three. Um, he's, he's earned that. And he obviously is very well respected. Mac Wilson is his biggest fan, as we see on social media every single day. So, you know, these, these are the type of things that John Dorsey's going into this third, you know, year that we have to watch because, you know, he was able to kind of spend a little bit to get a team that's going to win. But everybody knows it's not that hard to get a team to mediocrity in the NFL. Now he's got to take a team – that's an ultimately went from 0 and 16 to 7, 8, and 1 to what we hope is 9 and 7, possibly 8 and 8. How do we break through that ceiling? How do we get to that 12 and 4 level? And it's these type of deals that prohibit you in the future from adding the piece that you need. So, you know, you can make all the greatest draft picks in the world, which, you know, he pulls superstars and all these guys. If you can't pay them, it doesn't matter. Because by the, I mean, look at the Giants and Saquon Barkley. By the time he's coming into his fifth year, he's on the downside of his prime. The team's good, and he's not. So it's about syncing up the deals. And, you know, the GMs like John Snyder, you know, in Seattle, and, you know, Howie Roseman in Philly, they seem to have a knack for that wave. When's my team going to be really good? Spend the money at that point, and then let the crescendo come down from there. You know, so on the years that we're going to struggle, that – we are in essence saving money. I mean, look at the Eagles this year. They just gave Wentz that huge contract. Is he the guy? Jared Goff is, I mean, those are huge deals. I mean, I saw something Carson Wentz is going to be at like 40 million on the cap next year. It's expensive. Um, And lots of people sort of conflate the amount of salary cap rollover that was there with where the Browns are at with spending. We're actually, this season, the most expensive team in the NFL. We're 25 million pounds over the NFL salary cap of 188.2 million. And people look at cap space as sort of this number. But when you actually look at our spending versus the rest of the league, the 49ers have more active money in the NFL because um, they don't have as much dead cap. But where the Browns have got more dead cap, the total team spend is actually the most in the league. And that's something where you go... You've got the most expensive team in the league. Expectations should be higher than where we're at now. And obviously, expectations are higher than where the Browns are at. That's not sustainable. When you're going, right, if we do that again next year, let's spend $25 million over the cap next year, then the year after that, you've basically got to cut that $25 million extra spend straight off the top of the roster while giving Miles Garrett and Baker Mayfield their uh, big paydays. So that's going to be a sort of, if you're going, right, let's sign another 20 million to Baker, another 15 million to Miles Garrett, and then cut 20 million at the same time. That means in one year, you're potentially going from 40 million. a 25 million overspend to a 60 million pound cut. That is sort of, that's roller coaster. Sort well, of. that's what the Seahawks have to do too. When all those defensive guys came up and you lose all the fan favorites. And in looking at some of these contracts, Browns fans, I'm just going to tell you right now, David Njoku is not long for this roster. You know, this is a guy with incredible amounts of talent. Same draft class as Miles Garrett, but unless he's coming off of his third year, 17, 18, 19. So he would be eligible for an extension if they decide to exercise that fifth. But unless he's going to want a lot lower money than he probably thinks he's worth, because we all know David Njoku loves David Njoku. 
you know, these are the type of guys you're going to see never not come back to the Browns. And it's going to piss a lot of fans off because we've not had talented players and the fact that they're not going to stick around, you know, ultimately, is it a fault of a GM? I think that there's errors in there. And if we go sort of moving into trading is a tight end, a top tight end, contract is basically half of what a top wide receiver gets in terms of dollar. Um, whether they are a, a top player, that's for someone else to decide. But when you're at the top of the tight end market and your salary is basically 55% of the top of the wide receiver market, if you can get a top tight end, they're incredibly valuable because they're giving you a lot of value. Not as much as a top wide receiver, but very good value. And it's that business decision of where you pump the money. The three most expensive, four most expensive areas, left tackle, wide receiver, quarterback, and pass rusher. And when you're going to have the most expensive pass rusher in the NFL in Miles Garrett, you're going to have the most expensive um, quarterback in Baker whenever he gets paid. His time because, is up, yeah. Yeah, the, the last paid quarterback. Well, the nice question player. is, is does Lamar Jackson, because remember, same class, Lamar Jackson may actually get a touch higher than Baker, but those guys will be fighting. First. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, early. yeah, and you're in a race against a new GM. So, yeah, Dorsey needs to definitely be on his, on his whistles for there because, you know, that's the thing. And the Browns have luckily enough never had to worry about over the past 20 years having good players in longevity. So this is foreign territory. And you just hope that they're able to continue, you know, figuring out this contract situation you know i know that everybody's like oh the cap's going up well yeah the cap's going up but so are contracts so at the end of the day it's not like oh they're giving you 20 percent more to spend they're just increasing how much everybody's making so you know i think there's a little bit of a myth there um but you know he he's done a decent job finding in my opinion guys like kendall lamb getting hunt on that deal getting treader's deal done I mean, the Demetrius Harris contract isn't all that bad. Um, but at the end of the day, they're going to have to rely on guys like Steven Carlson, you know, the Scottish Hammer, JT Hassel. They're going to have to find these UDFAs to contribute because you have holes to fill on the roster. You know, guys like Sheldrick Redwine that can come in and give you meaningful snaps for economical prices because the roster is going to become very top-heavy with dollars. And as we know, that's the one knock on Dorsey is how do we manage this money? So I hope they're able to find somebody in that front office that really understands. I know Joe Banner's really good with this stuff, um, but let's hope they have a cap specialist on there because we have a lot of good players that we need to get on this team for long terms, and there's not always the money to do it. And the biggest knock-on impact that teams struggle to stay cap compliant is trading picks. And you look at just sort of the... Take the OBJ one, for example. You gave up OBJ a first and a third. And sorry, you gave up um, Peppers a first and a third. So you gave up a cap-controlled safety. So we're potentially going to go out and spend to replace that player. You gave up a first-round pick. And wherever you use that first-round pick, that's four of five cheap years you're going to get. So rather than that first-round pick, you're going to go out and you're going to spend, let's say, $10 million, um, on each year of that deal. So that's an extra 50 million you've sort of 50 million you've spent in cap there replacing that first round pick that you'd have got cheap. And the third round pick eh, might become a backup player. So that's 2 million a year. So that's good there. And it's that knock on. If you 
start paying all of these players that you pick swap for, um, that becomes pricey. So it's not too many of these. So we can't go out and trade a first round pick in the future. So yeah. trading that first round pick for sort of um, Williams, that would be madness because we're not a left tackle away from winning a Super Bowl. We're not a wide receiver away from winning a Super Bowl. So you, you make some middle of the road moves and you trade for some people, fine. Well, it forces you to make the, like the Duke Johnson trades. So you gave up the third in 2019, which the, you know, ended up, if I think the, the, I forget who the Giants who somebody, some defensive tackle, but you end up supplementing these third round picks that you've given up in future years. Because if we look here, you know, he obviously, he traded Wyatt, he got Wyatt Teller in a seventh for a fifth and a sixth. If you can hit on that seventh, that's great because now you're obviously making the payments or making the contracts later in the, or lower in value. And then they extend into your years where you have the big dollars. A six you know, or seven, they're basically the same thing once you're that low. So tell her for a fifth. I don't mind that sort of stuff. If you're trading off fifth, sixth, seventh round picks, go crazy because quite frankly, you well, can draft a player in the fifth, sixth round and they might not make the 53 that same season. And that's where they benefit getting a guy like Mac Wilson. You know, obviously people don't like drafting kickers in the fifth, but you know, you got Taiwan Taylor for a seventh. You know, the Murray Ogbo was a straight up um, trade. Um, you got McCray in a pick for swapping sevens. So Dorsey really, I think, is going to hedge his bet on trying to fill his roster with these late round and UDFAs. And, you know, we go back to what we talked about before. If Dorsey is the evaluator of talent that we think he is, you know, you're always going to see the bottom of the roster. Like if I'm on the Browns and I'm not in the top 35, 40, your roster position will always be in question, especially Chris Smith. If you, you know, have things going on, listen, I'm really sorry to hear everything that happened with him in his personal life, but I don't know, if, is this just not going reported? Chris Smith caused that. Like the legal stuff came out on that and he has questions to answer. So, you know, you start making these guys that have this money and now you have to get rid of those free agent contracts because you have to supplement them with these later picks. I mean, the fact that he was able to get Jarvis Landry for a fourth and a seventh, I mean, that's a fleecing. But then you go and trade the third for Tyrod Taylor. Yeah, I know there's a contract that comes with the but Landry. There was only two teams interested in picking up Jarvis Landry, and, and that says it, that you've got 29 teams in the league that aren't interested in adding Jarvis Landry. And if he is the great player he's rumored to be then surely more than two teams are interested it was us and the Ravens and why did no one else want him because he was paid 150% on top of the market rate for a slot receiver at that time and if he was a wide receiver one why didn't he play like a wide receiver one and um, we had to then go spend peppers a first and a third to bring in someone to take care of cornerback one to give him the space and he is the most overpaid wide receiver two in the NFL well, the ironic part is he's actually wide receiver one and Odell is the wide receiver two. So we could say Odell is the most overpaid two. I would say the, the best judge of it is look at what the cornerback, what is cornerback one for the other team doing? Jarvis might have slightly more yardage, but um, in the grand scheme of things, cornerback one is still on um, OBJ. Yeah. Um, so he, he's still wide receiver two. But it, yeah, and I get what you're saying. It's more year. of that why. Yeah. Yeah, all this myth about us trading Odell, that, that's just clickbait. Oh. Not trading Odell back. One of the two, or both of the two, has definitely gone in 2022. So mark that um, because, yeah, 
the, the whole contract game um, coming to a head. So, um, yeah, there, there's only one more year of them both playing together. So, fingers crossed. I hope they enjoy it because having that sort of opportunity must be amazing sort of personally off the pitch, playing with your mate for you've had for so many years. But, yeah, um, push is going to come to shove. One well, of maybe they get to a point where they say, you know what, collectively we have enough money. Let's stay together, play together for a pay cut. As we both shake our head that that's not happening, but it's... I'd happily pay each of them five million a year to play. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, Tom Brady deal. You know, but overall, I mean, I look at some of these trades. The Taylor for a third rounder that ended up being a right tackle for the Raiders. Yeah. Corey, the fact that he got value out of Corey Coleman, Sean Coleman, Kevin Hogan... That, to me, is actually quite impressive. I know that they're later picks. Um, the Randall uh, for Kaiser and then swapping in the fourth, I thought was a good deal, um, even, even if Randall leaves. And, you know, that's – people always say, well, he's not signing here again. The fact that you got that many years out of that is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I see that's what he's going to have to do, being creative ways to find these cap-friendly deals because, like I said, we're running into this, you know, this – this abyss of contract space that we think we have that we don't have. And I actually think his track record on making the trades to me favors out more positive than negative. You know, I know people weren't happy sometimes with like the Britain Colquitt uh, decision, you know, which I know wasn't a trade. It was a cut, but you brought somebody in who's making a, a fourth, a fifth of what he is. So these are the decisions he's going to have to make. Um, and, Again, I, I don't think that G John Dorsey is a bad GM. I think John Dorsey is a very good talent evaluator who has the potential to be a very good GM. I just hope that the people that he has underneath him on the business side, I take his bachelor's of economics, par it up with a master's of economics and possibly a doctoral in economics, get a salary cap guy in there because you know we are running, we got, we got two trains colliding here. And the Browns have a very short window to get this team from seven, eight, and one to eight and eight to 12 and four to really establish the culture because it becomes a lot easier to manage these rosters when you have 13 and three and 12 and four teams than eight and eight because no NFL player wants to go to the land of mediocrity. Yeah, and it's, it's about cashing in early because if we get to the stage where Baker takes 16%, Miles Garrett takes 11%, OBJ takes 9%, Landry takes 7%. Suddenly, what are you going to have on the other like 49 players on your roster? They're going to be absolutely piss poor. Quite it's like frankly. when Paul goes and spends 100 pounds on a piece of meat and serves it with a can of peas. <laughs> but that's basically the point. And if you look at the top teams of roster construction, um, where, where is the smart stuff? It's on spreading that load. The Patriots don't have many elite players, whereas the Falcons are full of elite players. And which one's successful in the long term? And we, we did see it can be successful. But what would, did the Falcons need for it to be successful? They needed their quarterback to play at an MVP level and their offensive piece in Julio Jones to play at a offensive player of the year level. And that is not sustainable. If, yeah. if we could all live the dream that Baker every year is going to be in the top three for MVP and Miles Garrett's going to be top three for defensive MVP and they're going to carry the rest of the team. But players get injured. Players don't play at the best level. Uh, one thing you mentioned on trading was pick swaps. Pick swaps are a fantastic way to go. 
Pats love them. Um, the Eagles do them. Kevin the Silver did a piece. Basically, just said, I think it's something like 90% of the time, if there's a pick swap deal, the team that get the player um, and give up the slightly higher pick win. Oh, so, um, well, yeah, that's what I mean. It, yeah. it, it, it's exactly what you want to do. Give up the higher pick, get the player, take that lower pick, and then you're always cycling and getting more picks. Mm-hmm. And I think when we talk about the other teams, a lot of times when you compare GMs, because ultimately we're discussing, is Dorsey good? Is Dorsey bad? And, you know, Thomas Dimitrov is known. He obviously cut his teeth in Cleveland in the mid-90s. He's known as a good GM, and yet he has – he thought he had that window. He got him to the Super Bowl. They're up 28-3, to but now you have this cliff. I think the Rams are heading towards that with the cap held that they're in. You know, and what's odd about the NFL, and this is what I think is crazy, here we are, two Jamokes talking about how the Browns lost a trade getting Odell and Vernon because of the cap. Yet if you're Dave Gettleman, you got Jabril Peppers, Kevin Zeitler, Dexter Lawrence in a defensive end, and you're about to get, you're about to get fired. So Jabril Peppers probably is not going to resign. Kevin Zeitler is going to take his money. He's probably going to leave. So at the end of the day, there's a trade that happens in the NFL. Both GMs lose. And that's the crazy part is, is Dave Gettleman's doing everything he can. Take Saquon. You know, you got all these – Last year, how many Browns fans wanted to take Saquon number one and whatever quarterback was left? Well, the Giants did that. They took Saquon Barkley and Danny Dimes, and Gettleman's getting fired. They can barely win a game. So that's what's wild about the NFL. You've got, you know, Odell and Vernon. Everybody's happy. We won March because we got Odell Beckham. Then he gets a sports hernia, and now Dorsey looks like an idiot because he's spending all this money on a guy that has less receiving yards than Chris Godwin. And the Giants are sitting there going, well, we got a safety on IR. I got a running back that can't run behind my $15 million or $15 million guard. And I got a defensive tackle that's just fat. So that's the crazy part about the NFL is sometimes deals happen and both sides lose. But, you know, when you start talking about pick swaps and things like that, you win some, you lose some. So at the end of the day, Howie Roseman built one of the most balanced, well-constructed rosters in Philly. And they're underperforming like in massive amounts with a Super Bowl winning coach. Well, why? You know, that's the one thing that I've always noticed about the Browns is we always want to blame somebody. I mean, there's people out there that their entire argument about why John Dorsey sucks is based on a PFF article. And it's like, listen, there has to be some context somewhere. Just because the Browns are losing games, we don't always have to blame somebody. You know, as an organization, does Haslam need to be better? Yes. Does JW need to be better? Yes. Does Dorsey need to be better? Yes. Alonzo, he probably beat the hell out of me, so he's doing just fine, Alonzo. Uh, Elliot Wolf, he seems to be doing what he's doing. Freddie, Wilkes, Monken, Henry, for uh, all of them. They need to all be better. And the players, they need to be better too because the GM, like Howie can do, put together this amazing roster. He loses his right tackle. He brings in Vitae, Vitae, whatever that guy's name is. He's a turnstile. Now your $200 million quarterback's getting the shit beaten out of him. And now he's like, well, wait, what's the GM doing? It's impossible with today's day to plan around everything. You know, so can Dorsey be better? Absolutely. Over the next 18 months, are we really going to see what John Dorsey is? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, he's going to piss a lot of people off. He's going to make roster moves. We got mad over a punter. Just imagine when we let some top-end talent walk out the door because we can't afford him. Or, you know, like Higgins, he pissed off Freddie, and now I don't know what he did, but he can't get out of the doghouse. Oh, we're letting Rashard Higgins go. Sorry. He may go somewhere and get 1,000 yards receiving. That's all possible. But, you know, at the end of the day, we have to try to figure out that balance. But at the end of the day – 
Dorsey can only do so much. And in my opinion, the, the information between the draft, the trades, you know, even some of the contracts, some good, some bad, it leads me to have optimism as opposed to the pessimism. And that's ultimately what, you know, the poll's going to be about. That's why we chased Paul off. Yeah, and I, and I was expecting the world still to be in Dorsey heaven by this point. I wasn't expecting Dorsey Hell to arrive. So it was a real shock when we got to this season and people started questioning Dorsey because I was of the view that you're talking, it's going to be heaven and for the first three years, everyone's going to love it. We're going to outspend everyone. We're going to be winning. Um, and I, it wouldn't have surprised me if, if we were competing for a Super Bowl this year because I was like, right, we've got more money than everyone else. We've got more assets. We've got all these additions. We've got the best team in the league on paper. Paper doesn't obviously translate. But um, so I, I, I'd more or less put in my head this year and next year, Dorsey heaven, everything's gravy. And then after that, I expected the cliff. Um, and yeah. that so it was a real surprise that this year people started questioning Dorsey because I was expecting to be alone for, for at least another year. And um, it's, it's changed. And I think he, he came in early and it was like, right, we're going to change this. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Let's make all these moves. And then, then he started trying to row back and it's like, oh, no, it's a, it's a long-term plan. And it's like, no, no, we've had the long-term plan. That's what we were building towards. And he got sacked because he couldn't deliver quick enough. And it was coming and deliver time. And for me, I, I, I still don't consider he, him a top half of the NFL in terms of the GM, just because there is a complete lack of cap management. And that comes down to him. If he wants to bring someone in to manage that and help him make decisions, but I think he'll go and do what he wants to do anyway. Drafting is so up and down. Yeah. Manziel thing. But to be fair... Also, with drafting, it's the most publicly criticized thing so he really benefited the fact that the previous regimes and this is going all the way back to tom heckert and going back there we have shit the bed so bad on draft picks the fact that we got baker ward chubb in one draft gave him probably too much in the bank when it came to fan credit you know i think we had talked about it before dorsey was playing with house money because Fans were so scorned and had so many bad draft picks. The fact that, hell, we had a guy on the team the next year was amazing. So what happened was is people thought, oh, every move this guy makes is going to be amazing when we all know any good GM in the NFL has to hit it at least 55%. You know, just like a gambler in Vegas. Nobody's going to hit it 85 90%. It's not going to happen. You know, you can't predict the unpredictable. So, you know, I just think that there's a lot more weight in the good side than the bad side. But – Ultimately, I could be very proven wrong over the next 12 to 18 months. Yeah. No, no just to wrap it up from my end, it's like I, I, I'm still at the top of that roller coaster. So I think he should have been doing better now than he is. And that's why I say he's a bad GM because the cliff is coming. But uh, it's going to be interesting. It's been a fun debate. There's been lots of views. So yeah. by all means, tweet us. We're I'm, all watching this cliff. So the answer is going to be if I'm Dorsey goes it. over the cliff, bad. If he flies, good. Yeah, so we'll not. Talent, it's a talent side versus cap side because, you know, we always want to have talented players on the team. But at the end of the day, we also have to know that that could come with some serious ramifications. So Dorsey at this point, we're right on that hinge point, whether or not he's going to succeed or fail miserably. So get, get the tweeting out. We want hashtag yes, Jack. Um, responses to the podcast. So we want hashtag yes, Ian. Responses to the podcast. I'm 
at Jack Duffin, J-A-C-K-D-U-F-F-I-N. What's your Twitter handle, Ian? I'm Ian, at Ian19, I-A-I-N-19. So the Yankee versus the, uh, the Englishman. Well, it's been a fantastic and fun debate. Um, I would expect like a, a 5% result if you'd have asked me where this poll would be at the start of the season. I think it's going to be interesting near a 50-50, but it's going to be an interesting one. Is John yeah. Dorsey, we'll just say top 16 GM in the league, that's the question, and we want you guys to decide. Let's hear it, everybody. And most importantly, go Browns. Go Browns. Go Browns.